According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Hebrews chapter 5 this morning. No, Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. Hebrews chapter 6. A passage that scares a lot of people, unfortunately. No need to scare you. Uh, And uh, in particular, the reason why it scares people is the problem, because they're being scared over the wrong thing. And they shouldn't be scared over the things they shouldn't be scared about. And because of that, they fail to be scared about what really is scary in this chapter. All right? And so I'm going to hopefully explain that for you here this morning, and that way we have the appropriate fear of the Lord, the appropriate reverence that uh, as we walk before Him day by day and moment by moment, and so, as we talk about going past the basics, getting past the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. And is that not what we all want to do? We all want to grow up. We all want to reach that level of maturity and be the mature man that stands before Christ. And then uh, last week we were talking about the, the definition of the basics, as it says here, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God of instructions about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And all those topics he lumps into basics, into the elementary teachings about the Christ. And he says, let's get past all that. Let's gain ground. Let's, uh, let's advance to maturity. And then he says, and this we will do if God permits. We're going to talk about the permissive will of God this morning, and especially as it relates to our carnality, as it relates to our reversionism and our recovery, and what happens when we're coming out of a time of recovery, if God permits. Okay. Before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to lead us into the truth of His Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing and privilege that it is for us to assemble together. Father, this is our your grace provision to us that we have neither earned nor deserved, and yet in your grace you've supplied it, and here we are. We are delighted, Father, to feast upon your truth. And so we call upon your faithfulness this morning to set aside distractions, to hedge us about and protect us. Father, to hinder anyone that would want to come in here and stop what we're doing or bring us to harm. Father, uh, protect us and bless us in your truth. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so we reach verse 3 and we get to this issue that I think gets overlooked. And in particular because it's a short verse. This we will do if God permits. And who cares? Anyway, we want to get on to verse 4 and following. That's That's the scary stuff, right? In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So let's face it, those verses are the ones everybody looks at. Verse 4, 5, and 6, it might as well not be anything else in chapter 6 as far as some people are concerned because it all gets absorbed in these uh, scary things because somebody told them they could lose their salvation. And it says, see right there, it says, look, you got saved and then you lost it. Okay, It's not what it says. And, and we're going to deal with that. We're going to deal with 4, 5, and 6. 
But before we do, we've got to remind ourselves, or we've got to stop and realize that verse 3 is actually significant. This we will do if God permits. This we will do. What will we do? We will press on to maturity. That's verse 1. Let us press on to maturity. And that's what we will do if God permits. And so the permissive will of God becomes significant, and particularly in the case of those that have fallen away, those that have fallen into the realms of apostasy that we're going to be looking at in this. It's not losing salvation, it's falling into realms of apostasy, it's departing from the experiential walk of the Christian way of life. And that will become clear as well. Repentance from defiant apostasy is conditional. It is conditional upon the permissive will of God. We want to be clear on this. I think this verse is profound, and this verse goes with some other passages as well that I think are significant. Repentance from defiant apostasy. And if you've ever been there, and God got you through it, thank God that He got you through it, and realize He didn't have to get you through it. It was His permissive will that got you through it. See, I had years in my lifetime that I'm don't think of very often, but when I do, I am thankful for the grace of God that got me through it, all right? Brought me to repentance. Didn't have to. And he may have actually decided in his wisdom and in his plan that not bringing me through it would have glorified Christ more than bringing me through it. And thank God he didn't, because he got me out of that and he brought me through. And uh, he had a plan that determined that somehow... Uh, that I was going to be useful to him and I was going to be more useful to him in fellowship instead of out of fellowship. But, however, that's not the case for some folks. That's not the case for many folks, as we're going to see. And so here in verse 3, I think it, it becomes clear. This we will do if God permits. And it's the reason why uh, pastors have to be gentle and why all believers need to be gentle. If, in fact, God calls upon you to come alongside a brother, come alongside a sister, if you are God's bondservant that is being used to speak the truth in love to somebody that has departed the truth, then that requires gentleness, and you may not, you may not succeed. <laughs> I'll just tell you right here and now. You may tell all the truth you know, and you may tell all the truth more than all the truth you know. You may tell all the truth the Holy Spirit knows and brings to remembrance the things you forgot you knew. Okay? And you may have all the right words and all the right Bible passages and all the right truth. And the loved one you're speaking to is walking in darkness and they stay in their darkness. And they not only do they not respond to anything you say, they in fact go even harder the other direction. So I think this becomes clear in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We can talk about this. Um, some folks want to limit this to pastors only. I don't see any reason why uh, that should be the case. We're all God's bond servant. We all need to be in fellowship. I think First uh, Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Timothy, two. This is easy to remember because of all the twos. Two Timothy two twenty two, and the verses that follow. And this is. Uh, the context whereby you can teach uh, confession of sin, you can teach rebound, 1 John 1, 9. You can teach these issues out of, out of uh, if you don't want John's writings, you can teach them out of Paul's writings. And uh, this is a good place to turn for this because we can either be a vessel of honor or a vessel to dishonor. In a large, verse 20 says, in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. 
Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he is a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And that's the point. When you're in fellowship, when you've confessed your sins and you're in fellowship and you're walking in the light, then you've cleansed yourself and you are a vessel for honor. You're useful. You would much rather be the useful, honorable vessel, not the uh, dishonorable vessel. You want to be the, the, uh, the presentable, glorious, useful. You want to be the, uh, the punch bowl, right? You want to be the, the fine china. You want to be the vessels for honor. And, and every housewife has them, right? You have the, the particular cups that are only used for those occasions, the particular bowls that are only used for those occasions. And uh, when you know, the husband pulls that out and uses it for the oil change, that's a problem, okay? You don't stick that under the car and change the oil. And so if you want to be a vessel for dishonor, that's the other thing I'm talking about. That's the chamber pot. That's the, that's the other thing, right? And when you're carnal, that's all you're good for. Okay, But when you're in fellowship, you're the vessel for honor, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And so we all want to cleanse ourselves. It's not just pastors only, it's any believer. And then it says, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And I love the fact that on a proportional basis, there's one thing you're fleeing and there's four things you're pursuing, right? And I recommend that. I recommend you spend about four, four times the amount of time pursuing the will of God as opposed to you know, the time you spend uh, avoiding a, a sin or, or trying not to do the wrong thing. All right? Because if, uh, if you just fixate on the wrong thing and say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, in my mind you're fixing on sin and then eventually you're going to do it. Okay? So don't dwell on the one thing you're not supposed to be doing. Instead, spend four, amounts, uh, four, you know, four times the amount of effort pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And you're not alone in that either, by the way. Because it says, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So plug into a local church, surround yourself with disciples, and, uh, and run that race. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And now we got a, an issue. Because your walk is going great, but your brother's struggling. And now there's quarrels. And so what do you do? The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Now some people limit this to the pastors. I think we're all the Lord's bondservants. And we all have, uh, you know, it's not only the pastors that must not be quarrelsome. We all must not be quarrelsome. And then it says, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. And if you want to focus on the able to teach, uh, then you can limit this to pastors only and you think you, you have your way of escape. You don't. This applies to all of us. We all must be not quarrelsome. We all must be kind. We all must be able to teach. If God puts you in that circumstance and you're the one that's face-to-face with his weaker sister, you're the one that's face-to-face with a struggling brother, then uh, you got to teach him. You can't just say, oh, hold on, let me go get my pastor. He'll teach you the doctrine you need right now. This is your assignment. Patient when wronged. You know, you're the one that was wronged. You're the one that's got to teach. You're the one that's got to minister. And, uh, you know, the pastor wasn't wronged. You were wronged. You deal with it. And then it says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. These are the opponents from your own family, from your own church family, from your own flock. But they're presently in darkness. They're presently being held captive. In fact, if you glance down to the end of the chapter, 
that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And that the, the closing verse of this chapter tells you everything you need to know, right? They're not unbelievers. Unbelievers aren't prisoners of war. You don't take your own soldiers prisoners of war. You take the other soldiers prisoners of war, right? I mean, that, that ought to be self-evident. That should go without saying. And, and for 200 years, our military had the tradition of POW, prisoner of war. 200 plus years. Until lately, in fact, I think it was the Clinton administration, they changed it to EPW. Did you know that? EPW now. They don't call them POWs, they're now EPWs, which are enemy prisoners of war. Which, like I say, kind of goes without saying. Of course they're enemy prisoners of war. Who are your friendly prisoners of war? I mean, they're all enemy prisoners of war. And I don't know how many millions of dollars it took for the Pentagon to redo all the literature and all the terminology, but it's now EPWs. And the point is, when you are wronged and when your brother is quarrelsome and when this is happening... You've got to be gentle, you've got to be patient, you've got to teach, and, uh, and, and they may come to their senses, or they may not. They may come to their senses, they may escape, or they may not, from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And he doesn't just, you know, take somebody captive and then stick them in a warehouse and do nothing with them. He actually takes them captive and put, puts them to work, sends them right back into church. Sends them right back into brothers and sisters where he can do more damage. Okay? He's, he's good at this. He's been doing it since Adam and Eve. He knows how to take somebody close to you and turn them against you. And when, and now I've skipped over the key point. And, um, that was on purpose. Okay? There's a, there's a method to the madness. Okay? <laughs> or there's a madness to the method. This is, um, they may come to their senses. Why? How? Depends on how good you are at doing this. So if you're patient enough, they'll recover. If you're kind enough, if you're gentle enough, they'll recover. It doesn't say that. With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if, perhaps, God may. Notice there's three terms of, uh, three terms of hesitancy, three terms of uncertainty, a conditional clause followed by a subjunctive mood with a particle here. If, perhaps, maybe God might grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Because until the attitude changes, they're not going to know anything. Until the attitude changes, no matter how gentle you are, how patient you are, how well you teach, or whatever else, until the repentance is a change of attitude, until God grants the repentance, then the escape won't happen. They won't come to their senses. Okay? And that term too, by the way, demands that they have senses to start with. Right? That the prodigal son returned to his senses. So if you never have senses in the first place, you can't return to your senses. Does that make sense? All right. <coughs> That's proof that only believers can commit apostasy. Only believers can depart from the truth because they're the only ones that are ever in the truth to start with. An unbeliever cannot apostatize. All right. And if you don't have any senses to start with, you can't return to your senses. So, <clears throat> but this is what we're looking at. See, if, 
Perhaps God may grant them repentance. Repentance is in the permissive will of God. <coughs> Same as Hebrews 6.3. Advancing to maturity, this we will do if God permits. If God permits. Okay? Let's recognize that. God may, God may not permit repentance. God may or may not permit maturity. You think, well, doesn't he want everybody to grow up? Yes, he does. He wants more. He wants the maximum number of mature believers that he's going to get. And what's going to produce the maximum number? Okay, we'll discuss some of these things. I think it's, it's curious to me. All right, there's a third passage. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. So, I mean, if, if this is dear to you, if you're praying for somebody right now that's not walking the way they should be walking, and you think, well, all they got to do is, I mean, just get back on doctrine. Just get back in fellowship. Just get back in church. Well, you can say that. How's that going to happen? When's that going to happen? On what basis will that happen? Is God going to grant them repentance? Okay? I'd be praying for that. Acts 8.22 and um, this is where, uh, this is uh, in Samaria, we got this character here named Simon. And uh, this is a, a good chapter, by the way, if you ever want to study the crossovers, not the converts, but the crossovers, because there's Old Testament believers that are crossing over and becoming New Testament believers. And, uh, and so Philip has an evangelism ministry here telling them the good news, and then the apostles are coming, and the apostles are laying hands on them. And uh, so in Acts 8.14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed over them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Old Testament believers that are being brought into the New Testament, being brought into the church age. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Of course, that's not true today. Today, you get the Holy Spirit the moment you place your faith in Christ and become saved. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of hands, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. And that seems pretty cool. That seems like a neat superpower. I want to, I want to do that, right? And uh, clearly, you know, uh, you know, if you have a perk like that, if you have capacity to bestow the Holy Spirit, that you can, you, can, you can do things with that, evidently. Simon thought so. And he was willing to pay top dollar to get that kind of power. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Now just, be, now just in case you're not clear on this, I didn't read, but in verse 13, even Simon himself believed. Okay, so don't try to talk me into the fact that you don't think Simon is, is in heaven today, okay, or you don't think Simon was a true believer. He was just professing, not really. No, he was an actual factual believer in Jesus Christ, and we're going to deal with that uh, here and also in Hebrews chapter 6. All right, so Simon, verse 13 tells us Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. So he is a believer, but he's being told to repent, okay? And that shouldn't shock us. Repentance is used of believers far more often than it's ever used of unbelievers in the, in the Scriptures. So, um, 
Peter tells him, you have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. And so now here's a third verse where we have repentance, and we have the permissive will of God, and we have potential, and yet it's expressed with a degree of doubt. It's expressed with a degree of doubt, okay? And I think that's, I think that's a good thing. I'm actually thankful for that. That because the Scripture records these things with doubt, we might approach these things with doubt. In fact, we may approach things with a human doubt that just is flat-out skeptical and says, I don't think it's ever going to happen, right? My humanity doesn't expect this person's ever going to recover. See, my humanity may ex- have be pretty... I'm the biggest pessimist in this room, but if my humanity can doubt something, well, guess what? Love believes all things, okay? And if, perhaps, God does grant repentance, well then, I want to make sure that I'm, my heart is right before the Lord too, okay? I want to make sure that I'm not harboring uh, middle attitude issues and things like that, okay? Anyway, so we have the aspect here. Pray to the Lord, if possible, the intentions of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. And that's a besetting sin. That's the thing that we're told to root it out. Don't even let a root of bitterness start to grow. Because if you, if you don't root it out, it does grow. And, it, and then it, it becomes this tangling snare that entangles you like a tangling vine. So get it at the root. Get it at the root. So repentance from defiant apostasy. When the, when the author of Hebrews says, we will press on to maturity if the Lord permits... The issue here that's hanging in the balance, of course, is the, the, the readers, the listeners of the, of the book of, of Hebrews. Are they, in fact, going to continue on or are they going to fall into apostasy? Are they going to return to their Judaism? If they are themselves uh, uh, Levitical priests that have crossed into their church age and are now thinking about going back to a Levitical priesthood, uh, and that seems to be the overall tone of, of the book of Hebrews. If they're on the verge of doing that, then God may not grant them repentance. He may just let them go. And depending on how eager they are to return to their priesthood, they may, if they hurry, they can get back to Jerusalem before the siege and destruction. <laughs> okay? All right. I mean, think about it. That is the, that's what's waiting for them if they, uh, if they return. The wisdom of God may deny maturity to church members. Why would he do such a thing? Well, because in his wisdom he has the uh, all things being worked together for good. The wisdom of God may deny maturity to church members, even as he denied entering into rest to the Exodus generation, and even as he denied repentance by the crucifixion generation. The permissive will of God will deny a lot of things. It will, uh, it will deny a lot of things to honor and reward negative volition to honor and reward uh, the willful volitional rebellion. I mean, that glorifies him when volition is exercised. Even negative volition. The wrath of God, the wrath of man will still praise his name because he permits that volition to be exercised. And the consequences of that permissive will, oh my, staggering, okay? So he denied uh, entering into rest into the Exodus generation. Right, and we've been looking at this. This is Psalm ninety-five, eleven. It's quoted a bunch of times in the Book of Hebrews. We've dealt with it repeatedly. I swore in my wrath they will not enter my rest. That was that was the will of God. 
He, he denied permission for them to enter. Only Caleb and Joshua, the only two that entered into the, into the land. He denied the crucifixion generation repentance. You know, when they demanded the release of Barabbas, when they demanded to crucify the Christ, when they rejected the Christ, and they, they, they defiantly shook their fist and said, we have no king but Caesar. <laughs> Pontius Pilate was willing to release Jesus, right? And they said, no, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. And they said, shall I crucify your king? They said, we have no king but Caesar. Imagine. This is the, this is the extent. This is what we talk about with defiant apostasy and, and open rebellion. And they shook their fist at God and said, his blood be upon our heads and upon our children. All right. Okay. And the prophet Isaiah prophesied of that hundreds of years ahead of time. It was spoken of here in Matthew, Matthew 13. Verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> Jesus says, In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes. They would hear with their ears. They would understand with their heart. And in that case, they would return and I would heal them. But you see, the permissive will of God doesn't call for that. And the plan of God as prophesied through Isaiah was for that generation to not repent, to not hear, to not see, to not believe. And so he gives them over. He gives them over. And we know the consequences. They crucified the Christ. Jerusalem was destroyed. The nation was scattered. And they spent nearly 2,000 years without a nation, without Jerusalem as their capital. Okay? And then this year, our president moves our embassy to Jerusalem. How historic is that? How amazing is that? That the Jewish people have a capital in Jerusalem and we moved our embassy there. I love that. Anyway, the wisdom of God may deny maturity. I think that's what you have to conclude when you look at let us press on to maturity and this we will do if God permits. He may grant repentance. He may grant maturity. Or in his wisdom, he may not. He may decide that, you know what? In the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, thousands were killed, but millions were saved. Okay? And so, you ever think about that in the, in the eternal plan of God? How many millions, how many millions were warned, instructed, blessed, benefited, saved because the example of Sodom and Gomorrah was pointed out to them and they were rescued out of, out of homosexuality or other forms of sin and other things, okay? Denying you maturity may influence your children may influence your grandchildren and so we 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 have such a finite view we have such a small view we think well that one guy that one guy needs to get to maturity and god is so much bigger in understanding the totality of everything and now can he grant you repentance can he put you in circumstances where you would repent sure 
He could have put Sodom and Gomorrah in a circumstance where they would have repented. Jesus proved that. He said that. But he didn't. It was a greater glory for him not to do that. Just as it's a greater glory for certain believers to not recover from their reversionism. Okay? And, and so we, we pray. We pray in God's grace. Especially if we have loved ones now that are not walking like they should be walking. Or their appetite is not what it used to be. Say, God, give them that hunger they used to have. That hunger for truth. They used to be, man, they used to be under teaching. Anytime the doors were open, they were there. They were probably there, the first ones there. They, they, they opened the doors. And uh, you know, the appetite's not what it was. Anyway, pray for that, that God may grant repentance. The change of thinking, the change of attitude, that it would glorify Him and not the other way around. That the divine discipline can glorify Him more. Okay? Does that make sense? I hope that's, uh, that's the issue there because you want a guy to recover, and I pray too when the recovery happens. When I pray, I pray when the recovery happens that it's a full recovery, that it's a permanent recovery, that it's lifelong, and that if if and that if that takes longer in the darkness to produce a long term repentance in the in the long run, then do that. Okay, it might not be pleasant in the meantime, you know, but if if it, if he has to have a prolonged time of darkness. So that when he finally does recover, it's it's forever. Then praise God. That's better than some people say. Well, I want him to recover today. Yeah, but it's too soon. He's not sorrowful enough. He's not learned enough. He's not been disciplined enough. It's too soon. If God bails him out today, he'll be right back in it again next week. He'll be doing the in and out thing for years. Okay. You know, some folks, when you're out, we use the out of the woods metaphor, you know, say, yeah, you're out of the woods now, but you're not that far out of the woods, okay? You're still in the fringes of the woods. I can see, I can see the trees from here, okay? So yeah, you're out of the woods, but you're, you're still looking at them. You're still close enough. So if that's the case, if, t- if repentance today would only be short term, if repentance today would only be partial or would have... You know, in and out, in and out, in and out. Okay, then, then God don't grant the repentance today. Defer the repentance. Crank up the heat. Crank up the discipline. Delay the repentance until it becomes permanent. Until that brother comes back out and is, and stays in the light forever. Stays in the light from from that moment till his physical death. That that's my prayer in uh, in those circumstances all right this we will do if god permits but in the case or four four in the case of those. And then now we're going to talk, we're going to give you a, a description of believers here. Let's look at verses four and five. It's a fourfold description. In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted, this one's split in half, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. That's all included in the fourth and final one. 
and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. All right, now the things to pay attention to in this, there's a lot of keys, there's a lot of clues in these verses. A lot of clues here. I'm going to take verses 4 and 5 as a unit, and then I'm going to take verse 6 and give that a separate outline. But um, as you look at 4, 5, and 6, the things to pay attention to, uh, palin, the Greek word palin, like Sarah Palin, P-A-L-I-N. Palin means again, okay? The Greek palin means again. And it comes again and again and again and again in this chapter. In fact, chapter 5, chapter 6, we've got a lot of agains. And um, in contrast to all those agains is the once. Having once been enlightened. Okay? Once is a hapax. Once is once. Jesus Christ died for our sins once. Jesus Christ went to the cross once. Jesus Christ rose from the dead once. And this once and for all provision is the theological basis for the once and for all salvation. The fact that uh, that you once are in line. It can only happen once. Something that can only happen once, by definition, can't happen again. I mean, seriously? It's not complicated. If it can only happen once, you can only lose your virginity once. Can't happen again. Okay? All these things can only happen once. And that's true for the death of Christ on the cross. That's true for being enlightened. That's true for seeing the light and coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You only get saved once. And so we have the, uh, the once, the hapax in verse 4. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, that's all it takes. They are believers and have tasted the heavenly gift. They're believers and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. They're believers. There is no way that these guys are just professing believers. Okay? See, the Armenians say, oh, well, yeah, they were truly saved, but then they lost it. The Calvinists say, oh, well, they were never truly saved. They were never saved in the first place because you can't lose it if you have it. And, uh, and both extremes of the spectrum are missing the whole point here. Okay? They are truly saved. They haven't lost their salvation. They've fallen into apostasy. So um, that's what we're looking at. This fourfold description is true for both converts and crossovers. This fourfold description is true for both converts and crossovers. I defined that for you last week. I'll define it again for you this week. I'll define it for you every week for 100 years if I have to until everybody knows what this is about. Converts and crossovers describing their actual factual entrance into the body of Christ. They're saved. And they're baptized into union with Jesus Christ. Okay? Converts and crossovers. A convert is an unbeliever that gets saved. Right? A convert, if, you, if you're walking the streets of Austin and you encounter an unbeliever and he's going to die and go to hell and he asks you, what must I do to be saved? And you tell him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And, uh, and they say, wow, that's easy. I, I want to do that. And so they do. And they believe in Jesus. And you lead them to Christ. And they're saved. Okay? Because they believe in Christ. They're converts. They're converts. They have been converted. Crossovers. We've talked about that. 
This is what we're talking about in the early church in the first century. You're talking about Old Testament believers that need to cross over into the New Testament. Old Testament believers that need to be baptized into the body of Christ. Because remember, in the Old Testament, they got saved believing that Messiah was coming. They got saved looking forward. They got saved anticipating that Messiah is coming. That Messiah will crush the serpent's head. That sin will be dealt with. The Lamb of God is coming who will take away the sin of the world. And all those Old Testament saints, they got saved looking forward to the coming Christ. Right? And then Christ came. Now, how do they cross over? They're already saved. Do they need to get saved a second time? No, he can't get saved a second time. <laughs> right? It's only once, once and for all. So they're not going to become reconverted. They're not going to convert, but they are going to cross over. And what happens is the Old Testament believer has to testify to Jesus as the Messiah. That, wow, I was looking forward to the coming Messiah, and he already came. I missed him. He came and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead and he's ascended to the Father's right hand. And they say, I now identify with Jesus Christ, with Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ. And then the apostles will baptize them, lay on hands, and they don't get saved all over again, but what happens? They receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, the fourfold description here, they experience these four things as crossovers, not as converts. And so they've been enlightened, okay? They see that Jesus is the Messiah. They've tasted the heavenly gift. Old Testament believers didn't have a heavenly taste like we do. We eat from a table that the saints of old had no right to eat. Been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Old Testament believers weren't partakers of the Holy Spirit. Very few. Prophets, a very few, a handful of prophets had the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Some of the judges, Samson, got the Holy Spirit, did strong stuff. But almost nobody received the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And yet in the church age, we all have the Holy Spirit. What a privilege. We take that for granted, right? We, we, we forget how unique that is. So to be enlightened, to taste of the heavenly gift, to... Um, partake of the Holy Spirit. These are true of converts. They're also true of crossovers. When an Old Testament believer comes to identify with Jesus as the Messiah and who is ushered into the body of Christ. That's the difference. Okay. If you, have, if you need any follow-up on this or any questions on this, uh, Wednesday night we, have, we do a Q&A night. We can, uh, we can explore deeper on all this. Okay. Because honestly, there were a lot of folks that were, I mean, Saul of Tarsus, saved as a child. There were a lot of folks that were saved in the Old Testament that when the Christ came, they hated him. They put him on a cross. They rejected him. Say, think about the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. Did they lose their salvation? Nobody loses salvation, (laughs) all right? So they died, and their eternal destiny is to identify with the nation of Israel, to identify with their Old Testament inheritance as, uh, as, as where they were in their tribe and their place in the nation of Israel, they could have been a part of the royal family of God. They could have been baptized in union with Jesus Christ. And they could have been ushered into an, an eternal church age inheritance. And instead, they, uh, 
they have their Old Testament inheritance for all eternity. Anyway, we'll talk about that too. So this um, fourfold description. It's applicable, it's true for both converts and crossovers as describing their actual factual interest in the body of Christ. There's just no way around it. And even the Calvinists have to admit this. They struggle. They say, you know, the Armenians kind of have a point. These four descriptions do seem to apply to what happens when you get saved. And, and there's a reason for that. What is enlightenment? Enlightenment is seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. You know, it's not corny. I mean, it can be corny, but you know, there's, you get different hymns, different songs, I saw the light, I saw the light, and different things, okay? But that's what it is. The light you, pierces the veil. And it happens once. John 1, 19. See, the, John the Baptist was not the light, he was the forerunner. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And uh, this enlightenment, there is the true light. There is the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. You know what? I don't want verse 19, I want verse 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now many of those that rejected him, they were born again, but they rejected him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So that shouldn't be 19 on the slide, that should be John 1, 9. Acts 26, 18. Seeing the light, 2618. And I like the idiom, I like the expression. These days we talk about the light bulb coming on. Like in a comic book strip drawing or something where the little light bulb is drawn in over top the person's head. Acts 2618. So, um... This is Paul recounting his Damascus Road experience. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet for this purpose. I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but to also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. There's our light. And from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So seeing the light, the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. And this is true for converts. This is true for crossovers. There's a lot of Old Testament saints that need to see the light as well. That have been believing in a coming Messiah but then once he comes, they need to identify with Jesus. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. To prove that this Jesus is the Christ. That's, that's the uh, point of discussing this with the crossovers. Okay?
And it was only then, by the way, it's not today. You and I can't encounter a crossover today. You and I can't walk the streets of Austin and find somebody that was saved 2,000 years ago in the Old Testament. Okay, It's just not going to happen. We, this crossover thing can only happen with that living generation in 33 AD and for the decades that followed, for the living generation of those that were saved prior to Calvary. Okay, There's no other crossover since then. No other Old Testament believers since then. And, and, and I shocked somebody last week. They got saved in the Old Testament believing that Messiah was coming. Now that doesn't happen today. A Jewish person today that believes Messiah is coming does not become an Old Testament believer today. And that was really shocking last week and I didn't know it was going to be so shocking and so scandalous for some folks. Okay? But a Jewish person today that's go, that went to synagogue yesterday that's you know wearing his little thing and doing the Jewish thing, if he believes that Messiah is coming, that does not save him like it saved in the Old Testament. Because today, the Christ has come, the Christ has risen, the Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. And there is salvation in no other name. So we've got to be clear on that. Seeing the light. The crossovers needed it. Converts need it to see the light. When that light bulb comes on, 2 Corinthians 4. This is why Satan is so busy blinding folks. Why he's so busy spreading darkness and blinding the minds of the unbelieving. Satan is clearly not a Calvinist. Calvinists believe that no one can believe. Satan's terrified that anyone can believe. So he blinds the minds of the unbelieving. And he puts veils over their eyes. It's like putting a hood over a blind man. Why would you do that? <laughs> yeah. Why do you put a blindfold over a blind man? If he's blind, he's blind. So even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's this enlightenment in the case of those who have once been enlightened. And uh, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Christ's sake, <coughs> or for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so our role as evangelists is so easy. <coughs> our role as evangelists, turn the light on, okay? Shine the light. And when the Father is drawing, when the Holy Spirit is convicting, when that repentance is granted, when these things are done, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. It's the easiest thing in the world. You can be the crummiest evangelist ever and lead hordes of people to Christ because they've been prepared by the Holy Spirit to, uh, to respond to that gospel message. But if they're still in darkness and they're not being convicted and they're not being drawn and they're not being, that, that preparation work is not being done by the Holy Spirit, then I don't care if you're the best evangelist that's ever walked this earth. And you can, you can give the best pitch you've got in, the, in, in gospel presentations and they're not going to listen to a thing you have to say. Okay? Anyway, seeing the light seeing the light and that's a it's a nice like i say it's a nice idiom when the light finally comes on when you see that light bulb click and when you and you can almost see it too in some people in some people you're talking to them and then all of a sudden there's just a little thing that just lights up and all of a sudden you're like oh, wait a minute wait a minute see 
And, and, and just treasure those moments. Those are, those, are, those are a thrill when they happen. All right, and then my last passage is 2 Timothy 1.10. I'm going to tell one story on this. This was um, a Jewish lady I, I know, used to know. I guess I still know her. I haven't seen her for a while. Um, and she grew up Jewish. She grew up learning all this stuff. She really came to love Yahweh, and she was doing all this stuff, but she married a Christian man. And so now she's learning, you know, reading the Bible, reading some things in the Gospels, and she's really liking this Jesus that she's reading about in the Bible. And she's reading, you know, the Gospels, and, and she's kind of trying to adjust in her marriage. And, and she's reading about this Jesus guy, and she's really liking him a lot, but she's, now she's scared. Because if she accepts Jesus as God, Yahweh is not going to like that. Yahweh said, you can't have any other gods. No other gods before me. And so she asks, she comes to me with these questions, right? Because I'm safe. I'm not one of her, I'm not her rabbi, I'm not her pastor, I'm, I'm kind of a third party. And she can ask me about this, you know. Is Yahweh going to be mad if she loves Jesus? <laughs> oh, No. And I was so happy to hear her ask these questions. I mean, this was just a thrill. Sit down and say, wait a minute. Let me, let me explain something here. You know, Yahweh is Jesus. Okay? Let me show you how this works. And, and walk through some scriptures. And when that, when that clicked, it's like, you know, when the light bulb came on, when the little thing in the eye lit up, it's like, Yahweh is Jesus? Wow, now it's not, now it's not, you know, cheating. Now it's not cheating on Yahweh to love Jesus. Now it's loving Yahweh by loving Jesus. And now, wow. And this is how a completed Jew becomes a, or how a, a Jew becomes, they call it a completed Jew. Um, anyway, it's just a, it's a fun thing to, to see that happen when you see the light, when the light bulb comes on. Second Timothy 1.10. Occasionally, it even happens in church when uh, when a message comes across and the person's sitting there and oh, that's what that's about. Second Timothy one ten. <clears throat> Verse eight says, um, "Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, suffering for the gospel." who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed. So from all eternity in the divine decrees, the plan was set in motion, but now in time has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. And notice, who abolished death. Pay attention to that who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so this is our message of light. And it's a message of life and immortality. It's a good news message. It's the uh, past completed work of Jesus Christ who abolished death, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And for this reason I suffer these things. Anyway, it goes on. This is enlightenment. And for those who have once been enlightened, they're saved. There's no other way around it. They have eternal life. 
The second description, tasting the heavenly gift. Tasting the heavenly gift is to drink the water of life, to eat the bread of heaven, to drink his blood. Tasting the heavenly gift. Jesus addressed this with the woman at the well in John 4. To drink the water of life. He who drinks this will never thirst again. To eat the bread of heaven. To drink his blood. I mean, how in the world can you process all this and think, well, they were never saved to begin with? How do you hold that view? It's ludicrous. It requires a willful suspension of all logic in order to hold to an emotional attachment to a theological position. And sadly, that's what they do. Tasting the heavenly gift, John 4.10. So he's at the city. The disciples went in to buy food. He's hanging outside the city at the well. And here comes this woman. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman says, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God. You see the gift right there? You're going to taste the gift? If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink. So you've got to know what the gift is and you've got to know who the giver is. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It's yours if you want it but it's got to be from your volition to take it. And so there it is. I mean, how how plain and simple is that? She says, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? He answered and said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. He realized if Arminian theology is true and somebody drinks of this water and gets saved, and then they lose their salvation, what does that mean? That means they're thirsting again. Because thirsting means to not be saved, yeah. And so, but Jesus says, you'll never thirst again. That's proof of eternal security right there. It's a good proof of eternal security right there. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So drink that water and taste of it. Taste of the heavenly gift. Switch metaphors. Go to bread in John 6. Okay. It still requires a consumption, either a drinking or an eating. It still requires an action on the human end of things. You still must do something. You can't just place yourself in proximity to the living water and somehow absorb it. You've got to drink it. You can't just put yourself in proximity to the bread and somehow it benefits you. You've got to eat it. Okay. And the action you take is what triggers it. That's why faith, the action we take, is, is the basis by which God then bestows eternal life. The non-meritorious expression of faith. John six thirty two. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. So know what the gift is. We have the verb giving here. That's a gift. Know what the gift is and know who the giver is. Is Moses the giver? God's the giver. So know what the gift is, know who the giver is. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven 
and gives life to the world. That's the gift. And these people in Hebrews have tasted the heavenly gift. So they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. In fact, we'll even let you be king if you can feed us every day. How about that? And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And this is the verse that defines our metaphors for us. Now we understand the metaphor of eating. Now we understand that it equates to coming and believing. Because those are the verbs we have there. He who comes to me, he who believes in me. Don't, Don't miss the metaphor for the reality. Eating is the metaphor. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You want another eternal security verse? There it is. If you think you can lose your salvation, then you think Jesus can disobey the Father. You think Jesus can cast you out even though the Father gave you to him. Let's uh, get on down to the next section there, verses 47 and following. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Again, metaphor. Eating equals believing equals coming to. It's a human action we must take in response to the gospel that is preached. Even so far as to drink his blood. And this, that's why I love Jesus so much. This is, he's such a confrontational kind of a teacher. He talks to him about eating his flesh. And the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? That was a tough thing to listen to. <laughs> and so what does Jesus do? Is he like a 21st century kind of a wishy-washy kind of, you know, Americanized prosperity gospel kind of guy? Does he back off and say, oh, I'm sorry, did I offend you? I should have provided a trigger warning maybe for this uh, sensitive thing here. No. He just doubles down. He goes, oh, really? You think that's tough, huh? Well, guess what? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. How do you like me now? So he adds that drink my blood on top of eat my flesh. It's all the same thing. Whether you're drinking the water of life or you're drinking the blood of Christ or eating the bread of heaven or whatever, these are all the expressions that Hebrews 6, 4 is talking about for tasting the heavenly gift. For tasting the heavenly gift. Become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partakers of the Holy Spirit is an unprecedented blessing for the church. Yet it is also a promised blessing for the millennial kingdom. This confuses folks as well. Partakers of the Holy Spirit is an unprecedented blessing for the church. Converts receive the Holy Spirit immediately. Crossovers receive the Holy Spirit when they are identified with the apostles and hands are laid upon them and they are ushered into the church. 
Either way, whether you're a crossover or a convert, you receive the Holy Spirit, and as a recipient of the Holy Spirit, you are baptized in union with Jesus Christ. You are a part of the body of Christ. You are a church member. Did you notice the capital M, capital C on that earlier slide? For members of the church. Sorry, I should have highlighted that. Capital M is member of the church universal. Capital C, church universal. Okay, we're not talking about individual local church membership. All right, sorry, I should have highlighted that. And so it is an unprecedented blessing. It's never been on the face of this earth before. It's unique to the church age, but it is anticipatory for something that has been promised to the millennial kingdom. There's a prophecy in Joel that says that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh, on all mankind. And uh, it is a millennial fulfillment of Joel 2, 28 and 29 when all humanity has the Holy Spirit. It's not true today. It's never been true in the church age. The majority of humanity does not have the Holy Spirit because the majority of humanity is not saved today. But the totality of humanity will have the Holy Spirit in the millennial kingdom. When all unbelievers are removed and only believers are on this earth, then the Holy Spirit descends and all humanity receives the Holy Spirit. Imagine a world with no unbelievers. Can you imagine a world with no unbelievers? We should, because according to His promise we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay. All right, we're going to deal with this uh, and then the next point as well. If I can get to the tasting the good word of God. Let's, that might have to wait for next week. Let's just wrap up with these. You know, from time to time, the book of Acts is, is frustrating for a lot of folks until somebody takes the time to explain to you the crossovers. And then once you understand the crossovers, then you go back, and every chapter in the book of Acts is a, is a, is a thrill. It's a great delight. You go, oh, well, that makes more sense now. Oh, well, that makes more sense now. All right? Because they keep encountering these Old Testament believers and keep ushering them into the body of Christ based upon information they didn't have until the apostles make that, uh, make that known. And so, let's see, real quickly, I'm, like I said, I'm almost out of time. Um, but in Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So this is the day of Pentecost. This is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Was it worldwide? Did all humanity receive the Holy Spirit in these verses? No. It was not worldwide. It was very localized. It was limited here. And then we're going to see additional outpourings when the apostles are laying on hands in subsequent chapters, like chapter 8. Verses 17 through 20, which we saw a few minutes ago. They uh, began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. That's when Simon said, ooh, I want to do that too. Give me that power. So we looked at that. Chapter 9, Damascus Road experience. Ananias uh, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, Paul was one of those crossovers. He didn't have to get saved that day. He just had to be brought into the New Testament. He had to be brought into the body of Christ. And so he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 10, 
all these Gentiles with Cornelius and his household. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Wow. Here we have a church age where there's no Jew nor Gentile. We're all one body in Christ. And these Old Testament Gentile believers are getting saved just like Old Testament Jewish believers were, I'm sorry, were getting crossed over, crossed over just like all the Old Testament Jewish believers were getting crossovered. Okay? You do realize that Cornelius was a believer when chapter 10 begins. He was a devout man, one who feared God, a Gentile believer, Old Testament believer. All right. People have problems with that too. Finally, next week, there's more tasting to happen. I'm getting hungry. There's more tasting. (laughs) Tasting of the heavenly gift, and now there's more tasting after that. Tasting the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And so we'll save that for next week. It is uh, not a restatement of the first tasting. It's actually a different tasting. The good rhema of God. Not the logos, the rhema of God. And the powers of the age to come. To identify with Jesus Christ for what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And this is the tasting that we do when we identify with Christ. Uh, Yesterday, today, forever. Jesus is the same. Father, I thank you for this class. I thank you for the book of Hebrews. And it's just coming to life for all of us, Father. And we're eager to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're eager to run with endurance. We're eager to enter into the rest. We're eager to engage in our priesthood, entering within the veil that is his flesh. There's so much that the book of Hebrews just comes to life. And it, uh, it, it stimulates us to love and good deeds And we stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Father, I pray that the book of Hebrews would have a powerful transformative effect on each one of us individually and on Austin Bible Church collectively. Might we as a body be transformed by this book study to engage in our priesthood in ways that we never have before, to consider these truths in ways we've never understood before, that we would be active participants in our priesthood in in ways that, uh, that this book describes. So, Father, uh, be at work. Let this uh, chapter be one that doesn't scare us, but but uh, motivates us, Father, in powerful ways. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.